Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Keegan Wilkinson to the Philacrosophy podcast. Keegan is the head coach at Marist, where he has a 68-57 record, 33-16 in the MAC, two-time champion, two-time NCAA tournament participant, has been to four straight championship games, and um, really fired up to have Keegan on the show. Keegan, how you doing, man? Doing great, Jamie. Thanks so much for having me and uh, always enjoy listening. So jacked up to be with you today. Yeah, man. So uh, really fired up uh, for lacrosse season. Um, I won't make you go into all the details, but it looks like you guys will be playing some lacrosse and it seems like across the country we're going to be able to play some lacrosse. Yeah, it's exciting. You know, after getting through the fall semester with all the questions to see a little bit on the horizon here, I know that, you know, our program and I'm sure every, everybody else across the country is starting to get really excited to get going. Totally. So as we usually do on this podcast, uh, I love starting out with hearing about your lacrosse journey and about your mentors. So uh, if you don't mind, uh, why don't you tell us uh, where, where, you, uh, where you come from and how you got to where you got? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, I grew up in Maryland, so I was really fortunate you know, to grow up in one of the ma- major lacrosse hotbeds uh, coming up and had some really awesome, obviously, colleges. And that was a time when you know, it wasn't on TV every week, you know, but in Maryland, you had the game of the week on channel two, which we had all the VHS tapes and everything like that. Um, so I had a ton of exposure to it, grew up playing it at a very early age, you know, kindergarten or first grade and um, just Howard County youth program, you know, right in between Baltimore and DC, um, played multiple sports, basketball, wrestling, soccer, football, baseball, lacrosse, all the way up to like sixth or seventh grade. Um, so I was pretty active and really enjoyed just the competitiveness of all those sports um, and was certainly challenged, you know, grew up playing, 
you know, with Jake Byrne, who's one of the more underrated shooters, ended up having a great career at Hopkins. He was on my team growing up. And nice. Brendan Mundorf, I'll never forget him showing up for a tryout. And no one knew who he was, and he scored 20 goals in about five minutes. So <laughs> quickly figured him out, um, but was was fortunate to grow up in, in an awesome area. And Jake, actually, his older brother, played for University of Maryland, Matt Hahn, um, in the late 90s. Yeah, uh, I was lucky enough to go ball boy with Jake uh, at a bunch of the Maryland games, which was one of the things that really piqued my interest in the sport. You know, standing on the end line with Andrew Whipple, you know, behind the goal, feeding guys like Matt Hahn and Scott Hodgstaff. Peter yeah. Hillgartner. Peter Hillgartner was, was really awesome. But then they're playing Hopkins in Virginia. So you got, you know, A.J. Hogan and Connor Gill playing, which uh, was just really, really great and got me fired up about lacrosse. And I was lucky enough that, uh, my parents had, I was a public school kid my whole life, um, and my parents decided to help me get to DeMatha Catholic High School uh, right outside D.C. in College Park for high school, which was really transformative for me and uh, a really tough, tough task for me, you know, coming from public school, going to a highly competitive, you know, not only academic school, but athletic school as well. And uh, everybody at DeMatha, you know, was there for a reason and was competed at a high level, so was surrounded by awesome guys at DeMatha and a wonderful coach in Dick Long um, who really challenged us. You know, we played all the best teams in D.C. and Baltimore and um, didn't have necessarily as much talent as maybe as those teams, but we played with a pretty serious competitive edge and, and a lot of attitude and was lucky for all those lessons that Coach Long taught us. And, you know, playing alongside the Looney Brothers and guys like Will Jones and Andy Gallagher, you know, and some of the guys that we had there before us was was awesome. Um, our team was actually inducted in the DeMatha Hall of Fame in 2001, which was pretty awesome wow. to see, you know, guys like Danny Ferry and Adrian Dantley. And then the 2001 lacrosse team was uh, was pretty special. Um, and that obviously prepared me for college. Took a number of different visits and ended up going to St. Joe's University in Philly, having a, a really, you know, unbelievable experience there coming in as a freshman have an opportunity to compete right away was something that was important to me after really earning my stripes at DeMatha um, and was fortunate to have that opportunity and I gotta applaud what coach Ray has done you know over the last eight to ten years at St. Joe's it's it's got all of the alumni really excited about that obviously and it's it's a far cry from where it was um, when I first got there so we're we're all excited about that and just applaud all of his hard work that that he's done at St. Joe's. Yeah, for sure. Proud of him. <laughs> and uh, being in Philly, I, I coached one year of high school across at Episcopal Academy right after graduation under Andy Hayes, um, which was really, really an awesome experience. And that got the juices flowing for coaching. I, I, it wasn't something I always thought about, you know, but I always had that strong passion for the game almost too much of a passion in college, spending more time focused on lacrosse and my academics. Um, but those are the lessons you share now with your guys. Um, and after that first year at Episcopal, I ended up looking for some college jobs and ended up at Marist College under J.M. Simpson um, for a year. And then Scott Nelson uh, came back into coaching after a really unbelievable career at Nazareth and Brown and was lucky that he retained me. So I worked under Scott for three years. Um, and, and learned an incredible amount about the organization of a program, you know, treating it as treating the players to the best of your ability in terms of giving them a great experience, what that entails, you know, the dedication and 
just an overall organizational standpoint. Those, those are things that Scott, uh, I'll never, you know, be able to thank him enough for that opportunity and really showing me what it was about. Um, and Scott moved on to Binghamton after our third year together, and we had really gained a lot of traction been able to bring some really fantastic recruits to the college and uh, was fortunate to go through the interview process and um, be named head coach going into the, let's see, 2012 spring season um, and have been there ever since. So really fortunate, you know, when I got there in 08, I think we were ranked at the time, I think there was 57 teams in the country and we were 54th <laughs> and uh, a much different space than we're in right now. So really just proud of the guys that have put in a ton of work to help, you know, get Marist into a position to compete for a championship each year and play some really solid lacrosse and compete with some of the best teams in the country. Very cool. You were pretty young division one head coach, weren't you? I'd say so. Yeah. I was, uh, let's see, five years removed from college. So 26 or 27 in my first year head coaching, um, which, which was wild. And without those years under Scott Nelson, you know, I would have never been prepared in terms of how to run a program. You know, I, I obviously study the game and, and, you know, a self, you know, a lax rat at the end of the day and watch a ton of film and do all those things. But without learning, you know, the day-to-day -day operations under a guy with coach Nelson's experience, it just, I would have never made it. So I'm um, really, really lucky for that opportunity. Absolutely. Totally. And when you're an assistant and you're on one side of the ball, you don't have to worry about how, how you're going to clear it, you know, how, you know, your strategies for recruiting and, and, you know, building culture and all the things we're going to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> it's trial by fire too. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, spending a, as an ex-attackman and spending my first four years in coaching as the offensive coordinator, didn't think about defense or clearing, like you said, a whole lot. And, uh, I remember when I got the head coaching job, the first thing I did, I actually purchased a book online from a company called Breakthrough Basketball, which is a basketball company. And it was on man-to-man -man defense and it was a 300 page book. And I just sat down and digested 300 page of man-to-man -man basketball defense. So a lot of the terms that we actually, we still use in the program were derived from a lot of those basketball philosophies and things that I sat down because I had never even been in a meeting room for defense, you know, so it was uh, definitely took a lot of, of work and putting in some extra hours for sure in the early years. What are like that book? What are some of the other resources you have used over the years to help yourself learn and get better uh, as it relates to maybe other sports or leadership or even in, in, in your own way of sharpening your saw in the lacrosse community? Yeah, I'd say in the first, you know, six, seven, eight years of coaching, the, the number one thing that I did was I digested as much film as humanly possible. You know, I had every game that I could find, a DVD copy of it, a VHS copy. I bought a TV that had a, you know, a DVD VHS combo built into it. So I would never need a VCR or anything like that. And just watched as much film as I could and have tremendous respect for a lot of coaches, you know, that I might not have a personal relationship with, but just having the opportunity to watch the way they coach and did things throughout the course of the years. And that's obviously changed a little bit now, you know, diving in more to the cultural aspects and different things that you need, you know, as a head coach in terms of team building and things like that. And I'd love, you know, different podcasts, take in as many as I can, you know, lacrosse specific, but also 
sports psychology. You know, I think Finding Mastery um, by Michael Gervais, who works with the Seahawks, is unbelievable um, podcast and touches on a lot of different, not only coaches, but people professionally that just have incredible knowledge. Um, and then different books. And I, I share the same book with one uh, player going into his senior year every year. And it's uh, Tim Grover from from good to great to unstoppable. And he's the trainer. He trained Michael Jordan for a long time. Uh, other guys like Troy and Wade and uh, Kobe Bryant. And he talks about, you know, the different aspects of what made those guys super successful, but how they got better each year throughout their career. Um, and I usually try and hand that off to one of our guys that has had a, a really good first couple of years on campus and is looking to make that jump. And I love that book. I would highly recommend that Tim Grover book. How much do you just, you know, whether it's at a convention on the recruiting trail or just over Zoom or phone calls, just um, talk with coaches and pick their brain and, and, and learn what they're doing, particularly the guys that you don't have to compete with? <laughs> yeah. I love the convention. You know, I, I, I'm a very staunch supporter of keeping that convention as coaching development, you know, speaker heavy as humanly possible. You know, I could sit there all weekend and listen to all the lectures this year. It was great because it was online and Coach Reppert at Maryland did an awesome job organizing it. And with it being online, you literally could hit every speaker, you know, because it was archived up there. And I thought that was really cool. And hopefully something they do in the future. Um, but the convention is something that our staff takes, you know, tremendous amount of respect heading into that weekend. And we're there from the first meeting until the last meeting every year. Um, and you look around the room and you see the guys that, that share that same passion. I mentioned coach Van Arsdale earlier, you know, he he's in every speech and he's one of the smartest coaches in the country, you know, so I think that's that's something we take great pride in. And obviously picking the brains of other coaches is really important, but we spend a lot of time sitting down in our offices with our players, you know, and I think that that communication is what has helped us really elevate, you know, our program is sitting down with them and what they're confident in and what they feel comfortable running in certain games or situations or what they want more of. I mean, we ask the question, how are the guys doing probably 50 times a week, you know, we, we want to have as good a pulse on the team as we can and just make sure that we're doing everything we can to put them in positions where they're confident. Um, so I think that the conversations, not only, you know, with other coaches and, you know, the dialogue's huge, but that conversation with your own staff and your own players is, is something that we truly value. Well, when you think about learning from your own players, there's nothing like watching practice film. You know, game film is awesome, but how much practice film do you guys end up watching? We watch a ton as a staff, you know, it's, yeah. we, we do a, something we take a lot of pride in at Marist is our meetings are usually anywhere between 20 to 25 minutes. And we, we try and hit one every day with the team um, before getting on the field. So we're going to focus on certain things and whether that's practice film or game film, keeping them as concise as we can, but we film there's probably four or five drills. We don't film the entire practice. We're not filming stick work and things like that, but we are going to film the things that we think are relative to what we're trying to get better at or what we're trying to do from a scouting standpoint. Um, and we were, uh, we love huddle because you could use the notations and the, you could write, you know, your own notes on there. So our guys could go home and watch it at any point. You know, if they're studying for an exam, they could pop it on at 11 PM and it's like, they're sitting down with us. So, 
practice films, obviously huge and something we take a lot of pride in and diving into. Um, just in terms of an overall preparation, you know, leading into a game, absolutely. It's it's not easy to do um, at the high school level, but um, you know, in this day and age with your iPhone, I pop my iPhone out and I film I film practice every single day. Or I hire a kid, pay pay twenty bucks, <laughs> pay, pay twenty bucks for the practice, and get up on a little ladder and and just film practice. And it's just phenomenal what you will learn. Just the nuances, the littlest things of things, you know, being, to be able to see what happened though. You know, the truth is if you, you don't watch the film, you don't actually know. Yeah, I think it's funny you say that because uh, we've been fortunate to have some really awesome managers in our program, but our staff is, is three of us, you know, it's not, we don't have a director of ops, we don't have a video coordinator. So we do have to pick and choose our battles because there is only so much time in the day. So while I wish I could sit down and, you know, dive in and, and dive into practice film every morning and spend a couple hours doing that. There is a lot of other duties when you only have three coaches that you have to, you have to allocate time for, for sure. And um, again, it's about staying organized and efficient with your time. So trying to do that to the best of our ability uh, is not as easy as maybe as it could be uh, with a limited staff. You know, we've never, I don't think we've talked about this. Maybe we have a long time ago, but we have something in common. Tim Tenney has had a huge impact on both of the programs, uh, yours currently and, and mine when I was at Denver. Tim was a Denver University grad. He coached uh, one of the all-time great players at Denver and really one of the all-time great guys. I became great friends with him. And I remember when he was uh, getting involved with you guys, and now you've got Tenney Fields at Maryland. Yeah, we, we have Tenney Field, which for Tim is something I know that he's really proud of. And it was featured actually in inside lacrosse as one of the best college stadiums in the country to watch a lacrosse game. Um, so it, it's a pretty similar setup to what they have at, at Denver in terms of the way it looks and the aesthetics of the field and everything. But um, an awesome, awesome setup and would never happen without his support. He's a local um, guy who's actually beyond lacrosse at our college he's on the board of trustees and he's got a big big impact on a lot of different areas of our college and um, we're really grateful for that but first and foremost as a lacrosse program I mean we have what we believe is one of the best best lacrosse stadiums in the country and it's named after Tim for his generosity and his support of the program yeah huge all right let's switch gears here um you kind of talked about it a little bit already but how do you go about building the culture of your program you guys have had so much consistency and you're continuing to be on the rise um culture is so huge how do you view it and how do you foster it yeah i think the number one reason that we've been able to foster that kind of culture is we've been able to recruit athletes that are cut from the same cloth and i think that we take a lot of pride in devoting uh, an enormous amount of time and spending with our recruits throughout their process and making sure that they would be the right fit, but also surrounding them with athletes that are of that same mindset, which is competitive and dedicated and guys that, you know, do love lacrosse, you know, and at the end of the day, they're coming into the locker room and you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with 44 guys that are really excited to be out there, really excited to practice, want to compete, you know, aren't going to back down from anybody or, you know, go into a game thinking, you know, why are we playing the third best team in the country? You know, we want guys that want to compete with anybody. So that's something that we take a lot of pride in 
something that we try and foster through a smaller roster, especially this year, you're seeing some of the rosters with all the fifth years coming back, you're seeing rosters at 60, 65 players, and we're still sitting right there at 45 players. And I think that that, that smaller roster for us has been an integral part of that and making sure that the investment from top to bottom is exceptionally high, you know, and I, I think that makes all of our jobs within the program a lot easier at the end of the day when you're coming to work with people that are excited to be there and, you know, want to get after it. And we organize the guys' days in, in a way that they're coming and they know they have about two and a half hours of work to get in where we, we sandwich all of our lacrosse activity into one time period, um, which would be practice, scouting reports, film, whatever we're doing that day. And then they can focus on their academics and their social life uh, throughout the rest of the day and really open up their schedule. So just creating that environment where we're trying to get the guys as confident as humanly possible. And that starts in the classroom. And we talk about that a lot with them. If, if you fail a test and you come to practice, you're not going to be feeling too good getting on the lacrosse field. So we want the guys to really push themselves in all areas of their life. So they're feeling confident and they're, they're engaged with their teammates and ready to go. So the culture has been something that, you know, we've, we've put a lot of time and emphasis into, we, we are a type of team that we are a bunch of guys that are going to work as hard as we can. And I think that on our college campus, that's something that has been apparent, you know, with other people on campus. So as we've been able to get better and better, we, we have a lot of support from people on campus because it's the, the, that's the 48 guys that are jogging through campus four days a week to get to the weight room in gray shirts and red shorts. Um, so when we played Bryant, for instance, in 2015 in the NCAA tournament, I think there are a lot of people that recognized all that hard work that had gone into that and were easy, eager to support us for that. And I think that even motivated us more to continue this trend forward. Your culture probably reflects your vision and your values. What specifically are your values and, and or what is the sort of vision or almost like the brand that you want people to sort of think of when they think of Marist Lacrosse? Yeah, obviously it's a reflection of our values. And I think that the things that we place an enormous amount of time and emphasis on is obviously a competitive atmosphere and a competitive nature. So our guys, you know, are, are gonna be understanding that no matter what we're doing, we're gonna compete at it, whether it's community service or GPA or lacrosse, we want guys that are hungry to do that and compete with each other internally, but also across campus and things like that. And then loyalty is something that I can't emphasize enough. And I've been really lucky to have some great assistance in this program. And I've had a lot of guys that played at Marist return to coach with me. Um, and something that we all really emphasize with our team is just having that sense of loyalty so that when you're waking up every morning, you're dedicated to the program and to the team, and you're going to put as much work in as you can during the time that's allocated for lacrosse. So those two things and the competitiveness and the loyalty aspect. And then uh, we have a young man in Eddie Coombs who we lost in 2011. That's the central piece of our entire program. Um, he was a freshman defensive midfielder for us and just an unbelievable teammate friend started in every game um, in 2011, was poised for an unbelievable career, but was just that guy that came in with just a supreme confidence, but just an ability to relate to everybody in our locker room. So 
um, having, you know, the number 34 jersey that we hand out to the most deserving senior um, in Eddie's honor and having Eric and Tina Coombs, his parents, really involved in our program um, is something that, you know, is, is something the guys can look to. You know, that's a role model and that's what I'm aspiring to be, not only Eddie, but, you know, the guys that wore that jersey, you know, and were rewarded with their hard work. And I have one of them in my assistant, Dave Scarcello, who played here and was a captain of our team in 2015 and a scholar All-American. He was the first guy to wear the number 34 jersey um, for his entire senior year. And that's the year we won the championship. We finished nationally ranked, you know, and ended up playing Syracuse in the tournament. But for our guys to have the opportunity to come in and sit down in the office with Dave, you know, and our other assistants and, you know, what'd you do here? How'd you handle this situation? What can I do better? There's no better resource for them. Um, so I'm really lucky to have Dave and a lot of the other guys that have spent some time on staff here that are committed to those three things. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, switching gears again, let's talk a little bit about how you like to play offense at Maris. What's your guys' philosophy and, and maybe how has it evolved? Yeah, I mentioned that uh, my whole life I was an offensive guy. And then when I took over as head coach, um, I ended up moving to the defensive side of the ball for a number of years um, and got away from the offense, honestly, other than in 2015, 2016, where I, I ran the extra man offense for the program, but didn't do a ton of offensive work with the guys um, until 2019, two years ago when Dave returned, who had played goalie here and ended up taking the defense back over. It allowed me to shift gears and go back to the offensive side of the ball and it was a lot different because a you had the shot clock and you had some different things than when i was coaching offense previously so i did have to shift gears a lot and i think the number one thing within our offense currently is we're going to have a motion we're going to have a design set with different movements and spacing and things like that to generate an initial look but ultimately also to set up what we would call an upgrade or a secondary action and once we get to the secondary look, the thing that the guys need to understand in that spot with a shot clock is at that point, we're just playing lacrosse off each other. Um, so we're going to build in a lot of drills throughout the course of our practice to get our guys used to playing with one another, because you don't have the time to reset, to reorganize, to reshape. Um, so a lot of our philosophies offensively are derived off that initial motion um, and then get into a secondary action where we have good spacing um, and we have different, what we would do on our, our whiteboard is draw a big square. That's where we're looking to get to next. And having the guys have a really clear understanding of how they can play with one another um, in that period of time in the offense. So give me some examples of what playing lacrosse means. Yeah, so playing lacrosse to us uh, means being able to read and react. So we, we talk to the guys a lot about football you know, mentality and football IQ. So Tom Brady, when he drops back, is making his read. So when we get to a play in lacrosse portion of our offense, we need to be able to read and react to what we're seeing, where our teammates are located and who they are. So if it's a left-handed goal scorer that likes to work off a two-man game or a pick, being prepared to work with that guy in that situation, or if it's a guy that likes space, you know, and wants to operate in a one-on-one -on -one area, just having that IQ, that, you know, familiarity, playing with your teammates to be able to play off one another. It's not going to be them looking to the sideline for the next call. You know, it's not going to be me 
yelling in on, okay, sweep here, do this. We want to be able to, first thing we're looking at is what's our approach look like by the defender? You know, is their foot high? Are they square? Are they this? And how can we attack that? And what are my reads after that? So we spend a lot of time watching film, obviously, of what we can see, you know, our opponents and try and build some anticipation there. But ultimately, things can change throughout the course of the game and defenses can change the way they're defending you. So we need our guys through our drills and our skill work to build that confidence that they're going to be able to read and react to whatever scenario they're seeing at that time. So you guys will kind of initiate offense with some kind of a structure. And then once you kind of get the defense rotating, you're just kind of playing. All great offenses have good people movement, good ball movement, and dodging. And I feel like it's pretty easy to get two of those, but to get all three of them is kind of the trick. Um, yeah. And I was just curious about your thoughts on that. I think that we spend a lot of time with our guys in terms of dodging. And one of the things we often reflect on them with is, you know, just starting at the very ground level. You know, Kobe Bryant, when he gets in the gym, he would do a thousand just simple jab steps, you know, to set up. He knew that that was the foundational piece to every move he was going to make on the court. So um, we build in a lot of different jab steps, two-step movements into our shooting when we're spending a lot of time with the guys building their skills and trying to incorporate that to help them as Dodgers. So they're not necessarily going out and getting 20 reps of sprinting down the alley, but they are going to get 100 reps throughout the course of the day of a jab step to help not only strengthen them, but get them and help them accelerate in and out of their dodges. So I think the dodging for us is, and the spacing are the two biggest components. And, you know, at Marist, we're not going to have the most athletic. We're not going to have the fastest, the biggest, the strongest, the top 100 recruits, you know, listed by some of these magazines. We're going to have guys that need to commit to playing a team brand of offense and commit to being disciplined with their off-ball spacing and off-ball movements. Can you elaborate a little more on the jab steps? I've been thinking a lot about jabs myself lately, and there's so <laughs> many different variations of it. Um, what are some of the variations and what do you teach on that? Yeah, so every day of practice, we'll spend um, 10 to 15 minutes on the front end of practice with shooting. And then we always actually, we finish our days with shooting as well. Um, and the philosophy behind that is we want everybody going into the locker room feeling really good about what they did. And if practice ends off a six on six or a full field and 30 guys are standing around, you know, they're going in the locker room stale, not really feeling good as opposed to coming out of a shooting drill with your boys and hitting the corner and feeling really good about yourself. And it's in those drills that we'll build in those jab step movements. And one of them in particular is just an old school three cage shooting where you've got three cages lined up. You dump the ball buckets out, you know, 12 yards in front of the goal and starting with step downs. It's more of like our warm ups per se. Um, but then we build in our jab step to a step down, our jab step to a shot down the alley, a jab step to a roll. Um, and our guys probably get sick and tired of hearing it from me. Um, but it's a fundamental piece of every dodge that, that we're making, whether it's, you know, the initial dodge or a hitch or anything on the backside of the offense. So um, just an aggressive jab, not something that's, you know, half-assed or soft. It's something that I'm going to be standing and my assistant will be standing in front of the bucket, making sure they're aggressive, their shoulders are down, you know, trying to hit the hole like a fullback almost in football or a running back and exploding out of that movement um, to help accelerate and, and get you better as a Dodger.
And the aggressive jab really has to do with, you know, selling it, right? Correct. Yeah. You want to get your momentum and something that, you know, I think our more high level guys can do is get their eyes also working in that direction um, to help sell that jab. So it's something that we'll try and incorporate with some of our guys that are at a bit of a higher level is get everything moving in one direction before that explosive movement. We're not wearing them down with those, like I said, 15 yard sprints. It's a, it's all in a window, you know, it's all dodging within a phone booth almost and just trying to build that explosive movement for them. And so how often do you do your work on that stuff against, you know, a, another person as opposed to just in a shooting drill against a cone? A lot, you know, and I think that's something, um, one of the coaches that I, I really lean on and, and watch closely is Coach Berkman at Salisbury. And I've been down to a couple of practices over the course of the years and the amount of repetitions that they get was something that like blew my mind. You know, you're so used to seeing a coach with a whistle in the mouth, blowing a play dead, talking through it, walking through it. And coach Berkman's philosophy was the more reps we're getting, the better, even if I'm not seeing it. So um, if we have two goals out, we're going to have both goals going at the same time. Cause I'm, we're now under the philosophy that we're trusting that the reps are more important than the, the watch drafts, especially if you're filming practice, we can always go back and watch it. Yeah. Um, so a lot of our drills, and especially in the front end of our practice, are competitive drills against our defensemen, you know, to get the blood flowing uh, before breaking up and then coming back and, and hitting on your transitional pieces and your six on six or full field pieces. So I'd say we've got a multitude of drills that we use. We don't have, you know, a drill bank and our guys are, not trying to comprehend a hundred different things we're trying to do. Yeah. We're going to have, you know, our eight to 10 staple drills that we do throughout the course of the week and typically designed with what we're covering that day um, from a scouting standpoint. Yeah. And you can tweak those drills to be whatever you need them to be, but it's nice because the, the guys know they can mobilize quickly and then you can, yeah. you can, you can tweak it to make it, you know, relative to the opponent or what you need to work on without having to like, all right, guys, no, 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 no. Like these lines over here and you know, mm -hmm. too many drills can be problematic. Yeah. That's a, that's something that our seniors and our upperclassmen do an awesome job of. And there's not a lot of downtime, you know, our athletic trainers know that the water needs to go behind the lines at practice. Cause they're not going to be that built in five minute, you know, water break where we're all just kind of standing around and bring the practice down to a snail's pace. You know, we move at a, a really high tempo and for our guys to understand what we're looking for from a drill standpoint, you know, allows us to get more repetitions at the end of the day. Cause we're not spending as much time downtime trying to explain a million different things. And when we do see something, you know, within the framework of a drill, that's not overly important. We have to stop it and really explain it, but we're going to pull the guys to the side while the drill continues and try and reinforce whatever it is that they need on the side while the drill continues. And, their teammates are getting those reps in. Speaking of jabs, Brendan Mundorf had a pretty sick right to left <laughs> uh, jab step, but it was really a left to left, but he would just do a hard, like he's going right and then stick his right foot in the ground and just blow right by you. You probably saw that in youth lacrosse all the way up <laughs> until- Yeah, I'm not exaggerating. He showed up to a tryout in seventh grade um, and it was an, in a gym. So it was, we're getting a million reps because you're not chasing the ball around. And- uh, I'm not kidding. He must have scored 100 goals that day. <laughs> we all were like, who the heck is this? And then obviously 
he went to Mount St. Joe's, which is an MIA school, but not one of the, you know, historical yeah. strong ones. And I mean, he put the team on his back and I went through the recruiting process um, and UMBC was one of the schools I was talking to. And one of my own teammates who was Andy Gallagher, who was our best attackman, uh, was going to commit there. And Brendan Mundorf was going to commit there. And I'm like, I, I'll be quickly reserved on the second line attack if I'm going to sit behind these guys for a while. So I had to explore some other options. <laughs> yeah. Um, how much two-man game do you guys play? We play a fair amount. I'd say that we don't do a ton of the traditional carry behind the goal, you know, two-man game. We do a lot of two-man actions from the high wing, which um, we call a 30, which would be the 30-yard marker on the football field. Um, so we would call it a 30 set because that's where we're starting our dodges. And that would be your two-man game where you're mirroring off the dodge. Um, for instance, if we sweep, we're popping to the alley. If we take the alley, we're popping up high and you get – you know, one of your attackmen in that action puts the defense in a pretty serious bind on where they want to slide from, you know, and we think has created a lot of space for us. So we've done a lot of that over the course of the last two years um, in terms of a two-man game. And then we build in some different things within the flow of the offense um, to help make it a little less, a little more disguised than maybe just your traditional carry to the end line two-man game. Yeah. Well, when you sort of put together those jabs and a, a clean a clean step and uh, a nice little mirror, you know, especially if you get to the middle, it's kind of hard to second slide to that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I bet you guys have made a lot, made a living on that. Yeah, and I think on we won't see a ton of it on film, but we'll try and pick up. And like I talked about our reads, you know, our number one read is how we're being approached by the on-ball defender. So we know what area of the field we can really attack. And then the second thing we're looking for is where that slide's coming from. Um, and I think that'll help us manipulate the defense a bit. But when you have your best attackman as that mirror guy, it puts a lot of pressure on that ball side defender. So they're going to try and hold that near side pipe so you're not getting underneath, which gives your ex-attackman a ton of space. And to be honest with you, having a lot of our two-man action from the high wings, we have one behind, and that's – all because we played Canisius in 18 and they had one guy behind and we were having such a hard time getting into our approaches to that man at X. And I, well, I was up. sitting there and I was, uh, as an ex attackman, I was drooling, you know, if I had that much space, oh my God, you know, I'd be able to scan the field. So it was something we started looking at. Um, and then I was watching some Vermont film leading into the 2019 film uh, season and then some Penn State film. Yeah. as well and they they had some really good high wing two-man action um, that our guys have now really come to love and and like i mentioned i love the old school alley dodges as much as the next guy especially being the traditional you know maryland style dodger and things like that um, but we need to be able to do a multitude of things and with our athletes that we have in marist iq deception you know, playing off each other and having good spacing are the things that we can really capitalize on as opposed to having a guy like Paul Rabel take it 45 yards up and just destroy somebody down the alley. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's something that our guys, once we started running it, they came in and I mentioned sitting down and talking to them and they looked at me and they said, coach, you know, we think we can be pretty good at that. You know, I think that we can have a lot of success in that set. And now it's something that that's become one of our staples within our offense. So you're more you're more mirror than you are picking as, as it relates to on ball. We would be more mirror than picking in that situation. Um, 
typically because that's one of our attackmen. So you have one of their better defenders there and bringing him over to that pit game is something that we prefer to just keep that space, put them in more of a bind and have to react to our movements as opposed to that traditional um, pit game action in that high wing. But some of our more experienced attackmen, like I said, are used to playing lacrosse off each other and they'll work themselves out there and set some different picks to help create even more space for our guys. So they have some freedom there. There's definitely the sense of, for our guys, you know, we want them playing the game with a lot of creative freedom and a lot of ability to, to make their own decisions. What about off ball picking? So off ball picking, we don't do a ton of it. I would say, you know, we're, we're trying to create a ton of space. So I know a lot of teams do a lot of that really good action where they'll pick away from the ball to help open up space. Um, and that's something that obviously we see on film a lot, but not something that we specifically incorporate a ton into our own offense. Gotcha. All right, let's um, let's turn our uh, attention to the defensive side of the ball. You got a chance to uh, be your own defensive coordinator there for a while. I did the same thing when I became a head coach. I hired Peter Hillgartner actually, and uh, <laughs> was my he coached the offense. And I had one year of experience of coaching defense at Yale, and I really enjoyed it. By the way, How, you must have absolutely loved the change. It's a lot of fun, isn't it? Yeah, I loved it. You know, I, I just said change of mentality, change of the type of guy you're working with. And, yeah. uh, you know, that first day walking out of the meeting room with the defense, you know, you're just jacked up. I mean, the guys are so ready to rock and just really engaged. And those meetings, you know, the time I spent with the defensive side of the ball, you know, those meetings are some of the best times of my coaching career, you know, oh. sitting down with those guys and designing a game plan and having open dialogue with them. But um, just that mentality, you know, I think, and that's something that I've tried my best to help translate over to our offensive side of the ball as well as just having that mentality of really being the aggressor and really getting after people. Um, and, and without coaching the defensive side of the ball, I'm not sure, you know, I would ever experience sure. that. Well, it's so important for every coach to have a chance to do that. If for, if for no other reason than to be able to make sure you're getting the right look when you're coaching your offense. <laughs> yeah. I think when we scout, you know, that's something that I, when I first went back to offense, I'd be watching film and I just had a completely different understanding of what they were trying to do, you know, or where they were coming from, which I think conceptually helped us a lot prepare as an offense. Um, and, and that started after a couple of years of working with the man down and then going to the man up um, and, and having a lot of success in 2015 and 16 on extra man was after spending some years coaching man down, you know, and really understanding what they were trying to do and how we could manipulate that. Do you ever notice it seems like, I think it's true with most defenses, they seem to be more consistent and that's kind of obvious because it's, it's probably easier to play defense than to handle the ball and score. You can do everything right on offense and not score, you know, hit the pipe or something, hit a hot goalie. But, um, but, but what I'm sort of getting at is the way that defenses seem to be just, I don't know, more engaged as to what's happening around them. And I was curious um, if you have ever noticed this and have ever tried to uh, figure out how to, I don't mean engaged, like not trying, but just like literally more consistent and more engaged in the game itself. Yeah, I think so. Cause they've, they're constantly being tasked with watching all that film, whereas offensive guys can, you know, they can go into a game without 
watch him a ton of film because it's their offense at the end of the day and they have to react to what we're doing offensively mm-hmm. as opposed to a defense defensive system where you're spending a lot more time with them from a scouting standpoint, you know, watching film, designing a game plan with them and things like that. So I, I, I see it within our program, the engagement, you know, the first thing I noticed going to the defensive side of the ball, you know, and, and then I thought about it as a head coach and, you know, those Sunday conversations that you have with your guys after treatment generally were happening with either my goalies or my close defenders and short stick defensive midfielders. So um, that's something that I've tried my best to really build that with our guys offensively. And now we have a, we have a redshirt senior in Joe Tierney, who is as good a leader as we've had. And I know is somebody that's really leaned on some of those guys that have come before him. And it's not just on the offensive side of the ball. Um, but I, I constantly laugh when I hear about a lot of the three by stuff and the free play stuff. And I think about our defense when I was coaching that unit, walking up from the meeting room and looking on the field and our offensive guys are playing three by and our defensive guys are just shaking their head. Like <laughs> We're sitting there watching film for 25 minutes and these guys are just running around, you know, throwing behind the backs like <laughs> that created a serious competitive nature in our practices. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I think part of it too is that the defense is taught truly to read and react through principles because you can't really make a rule because you don't really know what they're going to run. So you have to be able to just use principles. And some of those principles are like turning your head and seeing your man and seeing the ball. Right. And whereas on offense, it's more like, okay, we're going to do this. I want you to do it this way. Learn how to do this. This is what we're going to run. And yeah, if they do this, we'll do this. But it's a little bit more, it's almost like the difference between on offense, between motion and plays. Defense is like almost like the almost the, the, the ultimate motion concept because you can't actually script it. You have, to, you have to let them read it. And on offense, it can be scripted. And I feel like it becomes a little more tunnel vision. And I, I've just been thinking about this a lot lately. So I was just sort of floating it out there to see your thoughts. Yeah, I think some of the things that you're going to do that as a coach, you're going to talk about with your defenders. Some of those things are so concrete. You know, if there's two guys here, this is how we play. If there's this formation, this is where the slide should come from. Whereas as an offensive player, when there's two guys in a situation, you can do a million different things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas defense, it's a little more hardened. And this is how we treat that. This is how we treat that. So it builds that discipline, you know, and that, like you said, that engagement, uh, we know exactly what we do in this situation, whereas offensively, you can go away from a pick, you can go off a pick, you can dodge yeah. a million different ways. So just yeah. that free play versus that principle-driven, you For know, sure. concrete vision that you get out of your defenders. All right, let's, um, let's turn our attention one more time to recruiting. So first of all, tell us about Maris. I've, I've heard nothing but awesome things about the campus, about the school. Um, but I think people would like to know. And then uh, tell us about um, kind of what you're looking for as you're bringing kids into Marist. Yeah, one of our one of my favorite guys in the world, actually, Chris Heron, was a, a captain for us and coach with me and then worked with you at Mountain Vista. Yep. Um, and is just a salt of the earth, amazing, amazing guy that when we talk about loyalty, it doesn't get much stronger than what you're going to get out of Chris Heron. And uh, He was one of the first, he was the captain of my first team, my first year's head coach and having a guy like that in my corner was, was massive. But from a recruiting standpoint, you know, we talked about 
the resources that we have in terms of our stadium and our campus, you know, we feel are, are really, really strong. So the biggest thing for us is, you know, trying to attract really high level recruits to our campus. Cause once they get here, I think you walk away and say, wow, you know, that school has a lot of different things working in its favor. And it's no surprise that they've been able to have some success and it's just an awesome school and an awesome vibe. And I think that's one of the biggest things for us as coaches is our guys love being here, you know, and I think when you get to campus, yeah, you, we're coaching guys that have smiles on their faces, you know, and they're loving their everyday life. So I think when, when a recruit gets to campus and sees that kind of dynamic and atmosphere extending beyond the lacrosse field, you know, it's, it's everywhere at the school. And I think that translates really well for us. And then in terms of how we recruit, we're very selective. You know, we don't cast a super wide net. Uh, we're not reaching out to a hundred different kids. You know, we're going to find the guys that we really like. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, dedicate a lot of time to making sure they're the right fit, but also making sure that they know how we feel about them. So, you know, we, we follow guys all over creation. And I think one of the cool things that that has led to is for us is if you look at our roster, we have a lot of teammates, you know, we have a lot of guys from the same programs. We have a lot of guys that played club ball together. And, and that's an extension of, well, we like this one guy. And so we went and watched him six different times. And well, then that guy stood out and then that guy stood out, but those guys were seeing how dedicated we were to their teammates. And I think that helped us a lot. So you look, you know, we've got our Westchester area schools like Yorktown that we've had a lot of success and getting some great players from and Long Island, obviously we're two and a half hours from. So we've been able to have some great success there, but now as we've gotten better and better, our brand is expanding and we have players from Portland and Colorado and Texas. And we have a great pipeline in North Carolina, which I think for us, a lot of people in this tri-state area have known Maris for a long time. And you look at a city like Raleigh, North Carolina, where a lot of tri-state people have relocated to. And, and it was a place where a lot of people had familiarity with and had heard about Maris. So that pipeline that we've been able to create down there has been huge for us and just building off the different things that we have. And I think it starts with, you know, our own program, but also the, the tremendous resources that we have at the college. What are you looking for in a goalie? So when a goalie, I'm listening to your podcast, I, I was hoping you'd ask that. We want somebody that's going to make saves, you know, and I think you look at the goalie position specifically, I think can really be overcoached. You know, I, I think a lot of people have that vision of what they want a goalie to look like, and they try and peg everybody into looking like that, you know, and I think that can be unfair to a kid that, may be a little more unorthodox and just is more comfortable doing something and just makes a ton of saves, you know, and I think that's something at Maris where we've had a couple guys that might not have the most fundamental stance or technique or this or that, but they just make saves, you know, and at the end of the day, they're not thinking about their coaches saying, do this, do that. They're thinking about saving the ball. So we want somebody that can make saves and um, like I said, Dave Scarcello, who's my assistant, played goalie here and has a great eye for that. And the one thing that, that I think we know and we hope that we can help advance our goalies with is their clearing and their stick work. We, we spend a lot of time with those guys in those areas. So fundamentally in recruiting, we're looking for guys that are going to make saves and compete. 
All right, how about defenders? I'd say from a defensive standpoint, our our number one priority is a competitive nature, you know, and an athleticism for sure. So we've had some great defenders at Maris that were, you know, you're six foot two, you know, 205 long guys. We've had some great defenders at Maris that were five foot eight, you know, 175 pounds, but they shared that same mindset of, I'm going to stop you from getting to the goal and I'm going to make sure that our team gets a stop. And so when we're watching in a recruiting atmosphere, we're looking for guys that are going to compete um, and, and going to combining the defensemen and the goalies, you know, our, one of our biggest evaluations is what's happening after a goal is scored. You know, are they walking out of the cage? Are they putting their palms up? Are they not having dialogue with their teammates? I, I think that's huge. And I think our best defenses that we've had here, and we went from, 54th in the nation to 14th in one year between 2014 and 2015 it was we had guys that were committed to each other you know and, and were bought into playing that team system um, so defensively obviously athleticism but number one competitive nature um, absolutely and so how do you recruit the IQ it takes to play great team defense so the IQ aspect is obviously really tough if you're going out and just watching a lot of club games and there's obviously some clubs that have tremendous coaching and tremendous philosophies um, but we try and spend as much time as we can watching high school ball at the end of the spring so we're going to be up and down the east coast as much as we can we probably have you know as many tolls over the throgs next bridge as anybody in the country um, from may to june um, so really hoping to see them play in that high school environment where they have that hardened, you know, defensive philosophy. But the IQ, you know, everybody is going to need work at their IQ. And, and that starts not with slide and recovery in this system and covering that, but like every single guy we've ever had has needed work on their off-ball posture, keeping their head on a swivel, how they approach the ball, throwing a poke when they meet the ball you know, the tiniest minor things. So we know that as a, as a staff, we're going to spend a lot of time trying to develop IQ and trying to help them in that area. So I wouldn't say that IQ is something that we wrestle with as much as a staff as some of those other traits that we're looking for. Yep. So um, in the midfield, do you guys recruit defensive shorties specifically or just recruit athletes and, and then train them to, to be in the positions that you would want them? Yeah, I think that that recruiting short stick defensive midfielders is something that's really important to us, you know, and uh, Eddie Coombs was one of those guys that was a tremendous D midi that we were hoping we were going to help teach him how to play offense, you know, and uh, he was followed up by a guy in Jimmy Murphy, who was just a straight up D midi, had no desire to play offense and was completely bought into the defensive side of the ball. So I think getting that buy-in by recruiting defensive midfielders and guys that have played and sat in defensive meetings, maybe in high school, a little bit more than those athletes um, is something that's important to us. But also having the approach that, like we said, with our close defenders, getting athletes and helping build their IQ and coach them yeah. is, is definitely something that we do. And that mentality too, because you, you, know, you can take a guy who's athletic enough and really just wants to score goals. And you try to get him to play defense. And he's yeah. excited about <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't last too long in the D meeting room when you get a guy that the offensive coach wanted sent down and then they're not bought into it. They, they're not uh, 
getting a seat at the table too frequently. So you, you really need people that are bought into it. And uh, that's an evaluation process, obviously. And we have guys every year that we, you know, we try out a defense at some point. And sometimes you can tell within five minutes if it's something that they're really eager about. And sometimes, you know, it takes a little bit of time and they develop into somebody that has a lot of success. When you're talking about the rest of the middies and the omidies that you're looking at, are they coming in all different shapes and sizes or is there sort of a prototype? Yeah, for us, it's, it's all shapes and sizes, you know, and, and like I said, we're not a ACC big 10 team where we're going to get four midfield recruits that are six foot three and 200 pounds. It's just not going to happen. We're just going to go for the best guys we can find. So it's not like, we're trying to hit, we need an X, Y, and Z type guy. We're going after the best guys. And then it's our job as coaches to design our offense around those players. So we've morphed from in 2015, we had two of the better middies, I think, in the country and Mike Bagley and Drew Neesmith that were big, long, fast guys that could have played professionally for a long time. Mike did. To this past year, we had a bunch of guys that were converted attackmen on our first midfield. And the thing we saw with those guys was we had three, our first three offensive midfielders on the field all played X attack at some point in their career. Our passing was off the charts. So what we lacked maybe in an ability to break people down, we gained in terms of how high level our passing was uh, mm -hmm. amongst all six guys on the offense. So when you look at offense, you look at sort of uh, interchangeable parts with your attack and your midis? more recently we have yeah where they're working in conjunction with one another and, and have some certainly have some versatility to their games where they can do a lot of different things a little positionless lacrosse I mean you can do it all right I mean, you can have your big strong downhill dodging midfield and find a place for him as well as uh, the positionless lacrosse you know at the end of a shot clock with the way that people might pressure and might change defenses and jump into zone it's kind of nice to have that IQ slash skill flexibility I bet yeah, I think that was something that if you had told me, you know, two of our guys that were running on our first line two years ago, they would be, you know, 17 point in six games offensive midfielders. I would have never believed in a million years. And they've worked incredibly hard to develop their game in terms of their shooting up top and different things. But they also bring something to us that we don't get out of other guys, which is, like you said, their IQ and their ability to feed and, and read the defense. How important is two-handed handedness? For us, we feel it's really important. And obviously there's certain areas of the field where we're a little more confident, you know, playing a little more one-handed or getting to your inside. We talked about, you know, some of those high wing dodges. That's obviously a really good area to try and get back to your inside hand if you have the space to do so. Um, but we really, we really enforce our guys working on having both hands. And that's, you know, not us being stubborn or anything like that, just who we are. You know, we have a bunch of coaches that are, you know, I'm from Maryland. So offensively, I have that traditional background. We don't have a Canadian on our roster and we never have. So it's just kind of who we are and what we believe in and something that we take a lot of pride in. It, it, we have guys on our team that have more of that Canadian one-handed style and we allow them to play with that freedom. So we kind of adapt to what we have and, and what our players are like and try and do our best to give them confidence. So I'm not going to tell a guy that's a great left-handed goal scorer and can't do anything with his right that he's got to go out there and throw a 15-yard skip pass with his right hand. 
You're not going to make Brendan Mundorf work on his righty alley dodges. <laughs> exactly. As long as he's confident getting to the rack, we're feeling pretty good and we'll surround them with players that can do those things. So, yeah. I mean, the bottom line is, is that you, you know, 13 of the 20 top goal scorers in NCAA history were Canadian or native box players. Uh, and yet, um, on those teams, <laughs> they had the Johns Albertis too, that could, you know, split and feed from either hand from behind. And they had guys that could split to either hand and dodge alleys and, you know, and, and dump it to X and all that. I mean, there's a, there's a way to get it done. And I think that obviously we're all looking for players that can get it done. And then, like you said, fit them together once you, once you have them on the roster. Yeah. And I think that's the one thing that I've noticed is like, we have so many guys when they get here that, struggle to dodge the alleys and bang that 15 to 20 yard pass through X because everything has been adapted to a lot of that box style where it's very confined and then you ask them to open up and throw a skip pass or bang it through X and they really struggle with those things so it's meeting in the middle and being able to do you know all of those skills and like you said building them not only into your skill development but doing them when you have people draped all over you so uh, we have to do that and build that into our drills and our schemes, obviously. But like, you know, Matt Poske was a great inside goal scorer, probably didn't put in his weekend too much, but he played with Kyle Dixon and Matt Ward and, you know, Drew Thompson and all those other guys that opened up a lot of room for him. So we need to, at Maris, yeah, sure. we're not going to have four Canadians on the field at one time or four guys on the field that play like Canadians. We're going to have probably one, uh, maybe two. Right. Um, how do you recruit for your culture and how much does recruiting the parents or not recruiting the parents factor? Yeah, I think we, like I said, we spend a lot of time watching and I know a lot of people talk about two sport athletes and multi-sport athletes and things like that, but we do have a high percentage of guys on our roster that were high level football players, you know, and high level basketball players or hockey players and things like that. So that's something we, we do put a lot of stock into and for recruiting our culture, you know, we want guys that are going to compete, you know, and guys that are going to play football for their high school and not, you know, necessarily drop it to go hit a couple club tournaments. I always, I, I can't stand here and well, I'm not going to play because I want to focus on, you know, this, and it's like, well, how many days a week are you doing that? And you can't build that in around your high school football practice, you know? Uh, so I think recruiting our culture comes down to spending a lot of time with the athletes that we're recruiting, you know, whether that's following them on the road or when they do get to campus, you know, our whole staff spends three hours with them walking around and observing, you know, how they're interacting with their parents, how they're interacting with other people. Um, and, Obviously, like I mentioned, we've had a lot of guys that are teammates or maybe played together. That evaluation goes to the high school coaches and also the guys on our roster. If they know somebody, what's this guy like? And did you enjoy playing with him and different things like that? So that culture piece for us is something we don't shy away from. You know, we do have great resources here, but we do also for a long time, we, we spent our fall semester down on a north field, which was a grass field that was never cut, was always wet, rarely had lines, you know, painted on it. And our guys dressed in a wooden shed because that was our locker room. That's the only place we could house our guys. Um, and we took a, a really hardened mentality, but the guys bought into it. 
you know, and uh, they had a place to hang their wash at the end of the day and their equipment didn't have to drag it all over campus. And it was literally as old school and blue collar as you could imagine. And we could have hid from it and shown people, you know, our fancy stadium. Every recruit that came to campus, we pointed out that shed and we said, that's where we spend our fall, you know, and you're going to need to bring a pair of shoes with you because after practice, you're going to go up there, tie your sneakers up, and we're going to jog a mile through campus to get to the weight room and jog back. And the reason we're doing that, honestly, it was the easiest mode of transportation. <laughs> but some guys look at that, oh, man, that is awesome. And the parents, that's awesome. Some people are, you're crazy. <laughs> and uh, this is a place where we, we want people that are going to really value everything that they get. And uh, that's something that I can't overemphasize how much stock we put into that. Awesome. Awesome stuff. You've done a great job. Uh, best of luck on the season. I hope you guys uh, get a chance to uh, get yourselves back to the NCAA tournament and that we all have some great college across to watch. Keegan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Jamie. I appreciate it and hope you guys stay safe. Yeah, man. Take care.